You're listening to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast with Rebecca Larson. She is most commonly known as the wife of King John. But today we're going to cast a wider net to discover more about Isabella of Angoulême. To help us learn more about Isabella, we are joined today by author and historian Sharon Bennett Connolly. Sharon, welcome back. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you. I know you were on the show already with Steph, but this is the first time that I've had an opportunity to chat with you. Yeah, my husband was saying earlier, he says, do you know Rebecca then? I says, yeah, I've known her for yonks on Facebook. Right. <laughs> I was. You talked before. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I think back, I don't know if we met way back in 2015 or if it was shortly after. But yes, this is our first opportunity to actually speak. Yeah. And, and when I decided to do a season on Queens, I knew that I had to reach out to you and I knew that you had quite a few that you could speak on. And I'm so curious, why did you choose Isabella? She's a bit like my nemesis. Most of the queens, I understand. Isabella, I just cannot get an angle. I just don't, you know, you start off feeling really sorry for her when she's married to King John, but then some of the things she does after John death. You're not so sympathetic. And it's like trying to, when I wrote Ladies of Magna Carta, um, in which Isabella gets a whole chapter, I was trying my best to be sympathetic to her. But some of the things she does, you're just like, oh, honestly, seriously, woman, why did you do that? But it's just, I can't, she is such an enigma. She's so interesting. I hope one day I'll write a biography of her because I think she really does deserve it. Um, to find out exactly what motivated her. I'm interested to learn about her because she is really one of those queens who I think I've avoided because there was nothing that really drew me in. And King John really is kind of, in my opinion, has always been one of those boring kings. You know, he's that one who didn't do much or got in trouble and the Magna Carta and all of that. And that just has never been a big pull for me. So I'm really excited that you're going to tell us a little bit more about her today. You see, I'm the other way around. John is fascinating to me. I know he's a bad king, and I can tell you all the bad things he did. But his reign from start to finish was nonstop. You know, there was 17 years of just one thing after another. That's what I find fascinating about John. You just, from beginning to end, he's always in trouble. (laughs) Well, I am hoping that today on this episode, you are going to convince me to be more fascinated by both of them. So let's let's start with Isabella and let's go back to her childhood, which admittedly was not very long because we'll get to that shortly. But can you tell us a little bit about who her parents were, where she grew up and maybe what her education was like? We know nothing about her education, to be honest. We don't even know the year she was born, which is really sad. We know her parents were Audemar or Adimar, however you pronounce it, the Count of Angoulême, and her mother was Alice de Courtney. Now, Alice was, um, she had been married before to the Comte de Joigny, but that was annulled because of consanguinity. They were too closely related. But she had had a son by the Comte uh, named Peter. And you do hear later on there are rumours of Isabel, mostly really totally false rumours, of Isabel and her brother, her half-brother, having an affair. You find this a lot about Isabel. There are rumours everywhere. Every, most of the chroniclers were particularly unkind to her. 
and um, she was related. Isabel was related to most of the royal houses through her mother. She was related to the French. Her mother was a cousin of the King of France. She was related to the houses of Jerusalem, Hungary, Aragon and Castile. <laughs> she was really well connected. And she was at a very young age, she was betrothed to Hugh IX de Lusignan, who was the neighbouring lord to Angoulême. And the problem with this was, as far as King John was concerned, if Lusignan and Angoulême and the county of La Marche, which John had just given to Hugh IX, were all joined together, they would basically cut across architects the English domain of Aquitaine, so that it would split it into north and south with Angoulême, La Marche and Lusignan in the middle. This wasn't exactly, um, it would give this, the Angoulême's a really, well, the Lusignan's a really powerful hold on the centre of Aquitaine. And the Lusignan's hadn't always been faithful to the Aquitanian overlords. In fact, they had actually tried to kidnap Eleanor of Aquitaine, the Queen of Henry II, some years before, um, when they even captured William Marshall, the future chap who would be known as the greatest knight, and murdered the Earl of Salisbury, Patrick Earl of Salisbury. So they were dubious loyalty, although they'd been good friends with Richard I. So the idea of little Isabel marrying Hugh the Ninth was not something that John would have been conducive to, but they were betrothed. And the theory is that they, in 1200, they still weren't married, probably because Isabel was still too young to marry. The canonical age for girls for marriage in those days was 12. They were sometimes married before, but then when they got to the age of 12, they had to affirm that they did want the marriage. So with Isabel and Hugh, they were still only betrothed in 1200, because she wasn't yet 12. And not yet old enough to marry. It's so crazy because I think one of the things that um, I had been reading was they people aren't exactly sure how old she was when they got married. Is that safe to say? Yeah, we don't know because, like I say, we don't have her date of birth. We know her mum had been married to somebody else until 1184. Um, the first time she gets mentioned as the wife of the Count of Angoulême is in 1191. So you can like assume probably that she didn't actually marry until 1188 or 1189, um, because surely she would have been in some charters from the Count of Angoulême mm. um, before then, if she had been. Originally, her father was arranging this marriage with this Hugh guy, but yeah. then the opportunity to marry the King of England came in and he was like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, well, you want your daughter to be a countess or a queen. Right. I mean, and to have your son-in-law as either the neighbouring lord who's actually beneath you. You know, he was only lord of Lusignan. He only just been we could be made a count by King John. Um, he'd only just been made count Comte de la Marche. So he was beneath the Count of Angoulême sort of thing. You know, in the social sphere, Angoulême was a big place. La Marche, not so big. So... Either having your daughter marry a 
son-in-law of an idiot or one who was king of England, Duke of Aquitaine, Duke of Normandy, Count of Anjou, you know, Lord of Ireland. The list went on with John. Yeah, I, I think I wouldn't have had it. I don't think it was too difficult a decision for the Count of Angoulême to say, actually, you know what? Yeah, John can marry her. Right, exactly. And there was quite an age difference between John and Isabella. How old was he when they got married? Uh, John was about 34. Whoa. And Isabel, Isabella wasn't 12. Yeah, that's so, so And she could have been as young as 10. Unloved. We don't know. That's the problem. We don't know. Um, but it does put a slight strand on things when, you know, people are talking about Isabel's, Isabella's beauty. And the fact that John was enamored, there was a story that John was married her because he was enamored of her beauty. He saw her and he had to have, marry her. Um, which, if you were thinking about an 18-year-old girl, you don't, yeah, I get that. But a 10, 10 or 12-year-old girl, you're like, no. <laughs> right. That adds a whole other thing to it. <laughs> well, and, and there was a rumor, too, that young Isabella, the new Queen of England, was such a temptress, go figure, who kept her husband in bed until noon every day. Is there any evidence to back up that story? Or is this just no. another ploy by men to make women into the enemy? Yeah, I think it was a, it was the chroniclers that suggesting that John was neglecting his duties as king. That he was doing it because this beautiful girl was keeping him in bed. The evidence against that is Isabella didn't have a child until 12 or 7. They'd been married seven years before she gave birth to her first child, which suggests that John, you know, even if she'd been 12 or 13, a couple of years after they'd married, you know, she would have been, had a baby in 12 or 3 or 12 or 4, but no, not until 12 or 7. So John obviously wasn't in bed with her every chance he got because she'd have, she, I mean, the woman, one thing you can say about Isabella of Angoulême is she had no trouble getting pregnant. She had five children with John and nine with her second husband. So if she was, she was one of those poor women who just had to look at her husband to get pregnant by the time. <laughs> well, and I'm wondering, too, if she was so young, was she physically capable even of exactly. getting pregnant? I wouldn't have thought so. And I wouldn't have thought so. And I don't think John thought so. Like I say, she didn't have a child until 12 or 7. So yeah. John must have stayed away from her. Right. Exactly. You know, he didn't. There's no suggestion, except for well, there is suggestion. The chroniclers say clearly that John was in bed with her, but the fact that she didn't have a child, yeah, I would suggest, and then that she had five within the space of six years, seven years, I would suggest that he did stay away from her, yeah, well, and let her grow up a bit. Five children in the span of seven years—that's a lot of kids. It's about eight years, I think. Wow. Twelve or seven, and the last one was twelve fifteen or twelve sixteen. So okay. it's um yeah, she had nine with her second husband, and so her first son or her first child with John was future Henry the Third. Yes, he was born in twelve oh seven, and then you had Richard, born in twelve oh eight, I think it was. Joan twelve ten, Isabella uh, about. 1214, and then Eleanor, who married Simon de Montfort in 1215, or the latest research is suggesting that she was might have been born in 1216 and might not even have been born by the time John 
died in October 1216. Mm. So we just, we don't know. <laughs> I do want to get back to their children. But first, I am curious, do we know, was Isabella liked by the English? No. Was I that because she was French? Um, no. I mean, the thing is, the question is, of course, whether who you're talking about with the English, that she wouldn't have known the common English, from what I can tell anyway. She would have been well protected and um, kept away from the common people. The chroniclers didn't like her. They blamed her for the loss of Normandy, for the troubles in Aquitaine, Magna Carta. They blamed her for everything, the chroniclers. Poor girl had very little power when she was married to John, but they still like to blame her. So, yeah, I think if that trickles down, nobody's going to like her because all they get is the impression that she was this temptress who caused the loss of our English French land. Um, her marriage to John and jilting of Hugh de Lusignan caused so many problems for John in France. Philip, the king of king of France, actually backed Lusignan, and so it's an excuse to harry the English lands in France. And of course, the English nobles weren't English; they were Anglo-Norman. So they had as many lands in England as they had in Normandy. So Philip started taking over Normandy, and of course, the English lords weren't very happy. So they blamed John's marriage to Isabella, which means Isabella gets blamed. It's so different from the Tudor era, but I want to make sure that all of our listeners understand because help me understand too. When we're talking about the Tudors, we have the peerage and we have dukes and we have, you know, barons and earls and all of that. But during the 12th and 13th century, we didn't have all those titles, did we? We didn't have dukes. The first duke wasn't until the 14th century in England. Um, Dukes, they did have dukes on the continent, and King John himself was Duke of Aquitaine and Duke of Normandy. They were slightly different to English dukes in that they were actually semi-independent, semi-autonomous. They had an overlord, but in their own lands, they were the boss, which is, you know, like William, Duke of Normandy. He had, he had to pay fealty to the King of France, but he basically ruled Normandy as he wanted, and so did Henry II, Richard I, and King John. They did have earls, and that, that was the highest nobility, an earl. They were basically owed fealty to the king and provided the king with soldiers and took part in administrative duties like appointing sheriffs in counties, justices of the peace, counsellors to the king and generals in war. It's so fascinating how different it is when we were just looking at a few centuries um, of history over there. No, yeah, it is. And um, when you think about it, Magna Carta, which was at the end of John's reign, actually regulates some of this. It regulates the duty of the king to the lords and the duty of the lords to the king. And it, although it failed as a treaty when it was sealed in 1215, throughout the 13th century, you see it coming more into prominence and being used again and again to tell the king what his duties were and to tell the lords what their duties were. So that by you get to, time you get to the Tudors, everybody knows where they're supposed to be. 
Right. But there's been a lot of wrangling beforehand <laughs> for the Royal Society to be as so established as it was in the Tudor age. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about what court life maybe was like. Did Isabella have any roles or responsibilities at court? Um, no, unfortunately not. And it is, um, she, she was kept, seems to have been kept very secluded. She was with John some of the time. Uh, when she wasn't with John, she was, uh, for the early part of her marriage, she was placed in the custody of Isabella of Gloucester, who was John's first wife. And she had an establishment at Winchester and was given £50 a year to live on. And when Isabella of Angoulême moved in with her, she was given an extra £30 a year so that she could look after the Queen. Uh, uh, someone marries the King of England. They are given, usually, they're given lands from which they can um, take their own money. You know, their lands earn money and that is their money. And they're given an allowance from the king and they're given something called Queen's Gold, which is a tax on top of taxes and fines that are paid to the king. And all these are set up to finance the queen's household and to allow the queen to distribute largesse, to um, give donations to churches and to patronise people. And Isabella wasn't given any of this. She relied totally on money given to her by King John and didn't have any income of her own. So she had no establishment of her own. So she was totally dependent on what John wanted her to do at any particular time. In a lot of the um, references to her in um, the letters and papers from John, is she is often referred to as being in custody. And you just imagine that she's she's... He, is, he seems to be a very controlling husband, mainly probably because of his paranoia and the state of the country at the time and the fact that she was very young, I assume, had something to do with it. But, yeah, he was, seems to have been very controlling and kept her closely guarded rather than allowing her much freedom. You had, I have to go back to this because even a, a listener had commented about Isabella being sent to live with John's first wife. Can you give yeah. us a time frame on when that was? Was was Isabella already a mother at that time? No, this was, um, she moved out from living with Isabella of Gloucester just before the birth of Henry. So in the first seven years, between 1200 and 1207, except for the time she was with John, she was usually staying with Isabella. And it sounds really awkward, second wife staying with the first wife. Right. And when I was writing Ladies of Magna Carta, I was thinking, oh, that must have been really awkward and uncomfortable for both of them. And then I thought about it. Isabella of Angoulême was 10 or 11 or 12. She was a child, moved away from her parents, her country, everything she knew brought into this foreign land. Luckily, Everybody spoke French in those days, so there wasn't so much of a language problem. But just everything would have been so unfamiliar to her. And then she's placed in the household of this woman who was married to her husband, but now isn't, and is about 40 years old. In fact, she was a little older than, yeah, she was a little older than John, so she's about 40 years old. 
but she has no children of her own. So I'm there thinking, actually, she might have, Isabella of Gloucester, might have actually taken Isabella of Angoulême under her wing and sort of protected her and helped her. I don't, because she, she would have never seen Isabella of Angoulême as a threat. She was more than happy to no longer be married to John, I, I believe. And she was more or less a prisoner herself. John had divorced her, but retained her wardship. So he basically administered her lands and took the income from her lands, and he would do for another 15 years before he decided he'd marry her, her off for an extortionate amount of money, um, just so that he, because he could get £20,000 for her. <laughs> Always the money. <laughs> what I mean about John. <laughs> <laughs> so do we know... Did John and Isabella of Angoulême have a good marriage? Were they happy? We don't know. I I can't imagine them being very happy. But then Isabella of Angoulême would have known nothing else. You know, her only experience of marriage would have been with John. Her only experience at 10 years old and married off to John, her only experience of anything would have been with John. So they obviously got on to some extent because they did have five children together right. and John did send Isabel gifts and things like that and um, for example in, I'm just having a look in my sources now in 1207 he sent her a gilded saddle and harness three hoods of varying colours a hundred yards of fine linen two tablecloths four towels half a knot of skin and a belt so he was very generous with her and obviously knew that are supposed to send their wives gifts and like I said they did have five children so I can't imagine it was an acrimonious marriage and when you hear the kind of things she did to her second husband she didn't have as much power in her first marriage it doesn't look like she had as much um, discontent either. We talk about their children and I'm curious what kind of relationship did Isabella have with her children? Was she involved at all? Or was this one of those instances where they were all raised by other people and she wasn't involved? They were all raised by other people. And I do feel for her. You just wonder whether or not that was by her choice or John's choice. I mean, when the later children were born, um, England was in a very precarious state, bordering on civil war. So when the girls were born, they would have been sent to secure places to make sure that they were safe and could be raised in security and comfort. Yeah. But then you hear of Isabella leaving them all in 1217 to go back to Angoulême and you wonder how close, how much she thought of her children. But it may be well be that she just wasn't allowed to get close to them. Yeah, that's sad. Let's let's talk about this a little bit then. So how did Isabella react when things began to go wrong for John? Do we have any records of how she felt, which I doubt we do, but do we know anything about how she reacted to this? We don't. We don't know anything. She is, um, she is a, an enigma in the Chronicles. It's great to be able, you know, the Chronicles love having a go at her and blaming her for everything, but they don't paint a accurate or fair picture of her. So we don't know. She was in the West Country when the Magna Carta crisis was at its height uh, because um, 
so it's the west country the south southwest Devon and all that area were relatively secure and safe and in John's hands so she and Henry her eldest son were in Castlestown there safe and secure while John was fighting to hold on to his throne so we don't know what her response was to be honest mm. I can imagine it. there was probably some fear involved. She must have been petrified. Yeah. Her children were, I mean, especially Henry, were, you know, they. if anything happened to John, her children would be at risk, especially if the country couldn't be secured for Henry. Um, England, sorry, I forgot to mention, England had been invaded at that time. There was half the country was in the hands of, rebel barons and Louis the Prince of France who was the son of King Philip II he decided to chance his arm when barons contacted King Philip and said would you come over and be our king King Philip said no but Louis said oh I'll give it a go mm. and brought soldiers and reinforcements to England to try and claim the throne for himself and he had been proclaimed king in London it's just John was still king <laughs> in the Magna Carta for those who are unfamiliar, because I feel like this is a topic we haven't covered very much on this show, can you just give listeners a brief idea of what the purpose of the Magna Carta was? The purpose of the Magna Carta was, um, the main purpose was to bring the king under control, to um, protect the people from the excesses of the monarchy, and to um, iron out some of the issues that the lords had with the king. A lot of them, I mean, it's like weights and measures were regularised. The London was given its um, rightful place to actually just control itself. The English church was, everything was sorted so that the English church had confirmation of its rights. Um, the main clauses that everybody knows these days are 39 and 40 which was the right no the right to trial by jury and the protection from um, the sale of justice. So bribery was rooted out of um, justice and um, no one could be imprisoned or have their goods stolen without having been tried by a jury. There's other things in there, women... Widows' rights were protected so that their lands could be inherited by their heirs without being stolen by the king. Um, widows were allowed to marry the permission of the king so long as they paid a fine. They were just all, everything that was wrong, it was supposed to put right. <laughs> <laughs> and there was mention in there about something about Isabella, but just not by name. Yeah, she's mentioned clause 61, I think it is, where he grants everything is done in the name of the king and the queen and the king's heir, where the king's castles and things are protected from um, being seized by everyone because he says, all the land shall destroy and distresses in every way they can, namely by seizing castles, lands, possessions, and in other such ways as they can, saving our person and those of our queen and our children until in their judgment amends have been made. So they took some of his castles into protect, into custody until the king had made amends, but it was only those that weren't 
the Queen and the, child, the King's children were not staying at. They couldn't see anything that the Queen, anywhere that the Queen was staying or that the children were staying so that they were protected. Well, that's good at least. <laughs> <laughs> and we know that John signed off with a seal on the Magna Carta. Yes. What happened to him after that? What, what does John's demise look like? Well, John straight after Magna Carta, John wrote to the Pope and said, the barons have made me sign this nasty little charter and it's not fair. I didn't do it willingly. And there is um, a clause in the church where if you are forced to make an oath or to seal a charter, it is not valid because it was done under duress. So the first thing the Pope did was agree with John, say, actually, that wasn't right. They shouldn't have made him sign this. So he annulled Magna Carta and sent the annulment back to England uh, with um, orders to excommunicate those barons who had made John sign it. It wasn't really necessary for the Pope to do this, because by the time that the papal bull got back to England, Civil war had erupted anyway because John wasn't living by Magna Carta and the barons were sure John wasn't going to stand by Magna Carta, so they'd already decided that they were going to carry on with their rebellion. So by the time the papal ball got to England, um, John was besieging Rochester, Rochester Castle and successfully besieging it, actually. It did actually win the castle. And war, civil war had broken out in England. And for the next 18 months, 12 to 15 months, the civil war just raged throughout England. John was going up and down the country, putting out fires, saving his people from castles being besieged, losing his crown jewels in the wash. And then in October 1216, he fell ill while in Lincolnshire. He was at, he was at Swineshead Abbey when he fell ill uh, with dysentery and made his way to Newark Castle in um, Nottinghamshire, uh, which was a palace owned by the Bishop of Lincoln. And there he fell desperately ill and died on the night of the 18th, 19th of October. So suddenly, in the midst of the Civil War, the king dropped dead, and his son and heir is a nine-year-old boy. <laughs> that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you've got this poor nine-year-old boy, Henry, um, who is suddenly king of England. And John's advisors had to act really quickly because Louis was still in England. And if Louis heard about John's death in England, he was in London, he could have actually got himself crowned really quickly and become king of England. So William Marshall and Hubert de Burgh, who were John's closest advisors at the time, had Henry brought up from advisors I think he was staying at in Devon and Isabella as well from where she was staying I think she was at fourth or it might have been the other way around but they all met at Gloucester and the first thing they did when they met at Gloucester was to get Henry crowned of course he's only nine years old so the crown would be rather large for him so they used a circlet given by Isabella to crown little Henry and then the Hubert de Bourg and William Marshall and the papal legate, Guala, I remember how to pronounce his surname, all made sure that Henry succeeded and set the regency up with William Marshall at the head, who was the best man for the job, although he was in his 70s by this point. He was the most experienced 
night around. He was Earl of Pembroke and he knew how to fight. So he knew how to win this civil war, which is what he went on to do. So now we've kind of reached the second half of Isabella's life. (laughs) What happened to her after Henry became king? She wasn't part of the Regency. So what was her role? She didn't get one. Nobody gave her a role. She wasn't. Henry was put into the custody of Peter de Roche, the Bishop of Winchester, to continue his education and upbringing. William Marshall was the regent, so he was the one acting as king whilst Henry was still young. There was a whole council, privy council, set up to help rule the country with William Marshall at the head, Hubert de Burgh, the papal legate Guala, and a load of other lords, but not Isabella. She wasn't given any job, and she also wasn't given her money. Nobody, when a queen dies, she is supposed to be given the dower lands. The the whole idea is that they support her in her widowhood. And they didn't release that money. So she was there in England. Her children were in other people's custody, being raised by others. She had no responsibility for Henry's upbringing or the running of his country. And she was basically left out in the cold. And because she'd had such a bad press, nobody actually wanted to bring her into the fold or to give her any responsibility and let her be part of her son's administration. So she was just there redundant and with no money. So she had very few options, except in France, in Angoulême, her dad had died. She was Countess of Angoulême in her own right. If she went home, she would have responsibilities to rule her own county. She would have her own money to do it. You know, you can understand why she just thought, if if I can't do anything here, I might as well go home. Right. Yeah, because if she had stayed in England, then she likely would have had to marry somebody just to survive. Yeah. Well, she would have because they weren't giving her her money. So right. she, need, she would have needed something and she didn't have any protectors. She'd been kept so isolated by John. She didn't know many people in England. And she certainly, you know, and like I say, everything else, everything she had at home, she would have some independence. She would have control over her own life for the first time in her life. But she had to leave her children behind. And I think that's the sad part, isn't it? I think it is very sad. And um, I, I really do... I feel for Isabella. I think because of the life she'd had up to that point, um, she she must have um, had some very dark thoughts and dark times. And you just wonder how how on earth she actually managed to get through it all. Do we know, did she have any involvement in the marriage arrange, arrangements of her children? No, that was all John. I mean, the eldest daughter, Joan, um, the first time she's mentioned in marriage is um, actually before she's born. In 1209, the Treaty of Norham between King John and William the Lion of Scots. In that treaty, um, John is given custody of William the Lion's two eldest daughters and agrees to arrange their marriages, possibly one to his eldest son. And 
the treaty also says that William's son Alexander will marry the eldest daughter of King John, even though he hasn't got a daughter yet. So poor Joan. <laughs> a little presumptuous there. <laughs> so poor Joan is almost married off before she's even born. But then when she is born, John actually decides that by the time she's four, that a more suitable marriage, as far as John's concerned, would be in France rather than in Scotland. To be fair, it seems likely that John agreed for the marriage of a daughter to the son of the King of Scots as a way of preventing the son of the King of Scots from marrying elsewhere. So the idea was to actually stop, dangle the idea of an English princess so that he didn't look to France and a French princess and a French ally mm -hmm. for marriage. But then when John finally did have a daughter, he was looking to appease Hugh de Lusignan, not Isabella's former betrothed Hugh de Lusignan, but his son, Hugh de Lusignan X. You get it every now and then when you read about Isabella and Joan and Hugh. You, you do see a confusion as to whether who Joan was actually betrothed to, but she wasn't betrothed to the man who'd been married, who'd been betrothed to her mum. She was betrothed to that man's son. So her mum was betrothed to Hugh the Ninth. Joan was betrothed to Hugh the Tenth. And there seems to be some confusion as to what happened with Joan. This was when she was four. She was betrothed to Hugh the Tenth, and it's possible that she was actually left in Hugh's custody at that point and left England when she was four until 14. So some sources say she left England and lived with grew up in Hugh's family, and some sources say she was in England. So I haven't worked out exactly where she was yet. Um, but all this changes when her mum comes over to Ungerland and is discovered Hugh and Isabel. So Isabel, who, Isabella, who'd been betrothed to Hugh the Ninth, now meets Hugh the Tenth and marries him, and she she sends this letter back to Henry, um, explaining the reasons for the marriage, which are basically that Hugh is being advised that he needs to marry straight away, and that he need, needs to marry a woman who can give him children straight away. And Joan at this point was still only nine years old, and the idea is that if he doesn't, he needs to. Put Joan aside and marry a French princess. And Isabella's argument was, I married Hugh so that he didn't marry a French princess because that would have been bad for England. Interesting. There's so much politic, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> and you see, when she's back in Angoulême, she's writing to Henry often to excuse her actions because some of the things she does and not in the interest of England. And you get this feeling that she's got, she's expected to act in England's interests all the time, above Ongolens. You know, everybody's criticising her because she's not acting in the interest of England, but she is acting in the interest of herself and her county of Ongolens. And she's actually on the ground having to live in Ongolens with the French army on her borders most of the time and trying to encroach on her lands. And you've got the English miles away 
telling her, no, you've got to stay strong and be with England. <laughs> you just imagine this poor woman caught between a rock and a hard place with English fantasy and French reality on her doorstep. Right. Well, how difficult. Her son is the king of England. Uh, I can just imagine how torn she felt because she'd want to yeah. support him as well. Yeah, me too. Um, and she doesn't see Henry for 12 years Oh wow! after she leaves England. That's a long time. It is a long time. And she only, then she only sees him in 1230. He's come to basically um, to have war with France. So, and she and Hugh have allied themselves with Henry, but then they turn against Henry when it works out that it's not in their interest, in the interest of Angolan to actually fight the French. So they make peace with the French, which Henry then feels betrayed. Like I say, it's all right for the English who are miles away and haven't got the French on their doorstep. (laughs) What was her marriage? to Hugh like? Do we know, did they get along? Um, They must have got along enough to have nine children. Mm -hmm. But um, there are reports that it was rocky. Um, There are rumours of divorce, um, Hugh having multiple affairs. And then there's this great incident where Hugh, she um, takes all the soft furnishings from Hugh de Lusignan's castle and goes back home to Angolan with all the furnishings of his castle <laughs> and then locks the doors and leaves him locked out of the castle for three days before she lets him in. Okay, now she's becoming more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you just got this image of this feisty woman going, <laughs> you, you've upset me, so I'm licking all your stuff. It's like it's like that upset girlfriend who throws all of her boyfriend's clothes out into the front lawn. <laughs> yeah, I tell you, if she'd, if she'd thought of cutting everything up, I'm sure she would have done. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is so funny. I love that. Well, why don't you let us know a little bit maybe about what the end of Isabella's life looked like? It's a sad one, actually, when you think about it, because. There are instances where Isabella is slighted by the Queen of France, Blanche of Castile, who is actually her niece by marriage because um, she's John's sister's daughter. And she goes to meet Blanche and is made to stand while the Queen sits, despite the fact that she herself is a crowned and anointed Queen. So she has this very rocky relationship with the French monarchy, and then she gets accused. There are these two chefs who are accused of trying to poison the king, the king of France, and they admit or claim that they did it on Isabella's orders. So Isabella, rather than admitting it or denying it, she doesn't do either, she runs to the abbey at Pontevrain, where Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine are buried, and Richard I is buried. It's the Plantagenet um, mausoleum. And she goes and seeks sanctuary there, and is eventually veiled as a nun before she dies there. It's a great ending for Isabella, I suppose, because it's exactly as she lived, still full of controversy and conspiracy, 
And but at the end, she does take the veil. She does um, become a nun and um, dies there in I can't remember the year. I didn't expect that ending. <laughs> it's um yeah she is um but that is just her she's an enigma she died there on 4th of june 1246 and she was buried there with richard the first henry the second and eleanor of Aquitaine. um but hugh de lusignan was still alive he didn't die until 1249 so she was buried um, with her in-laws yeah she was buried with her in-laws and despite the fact she'd abandoned her English children in 1217-1218, Henry still felt a lot for her. He had prayers said for her soul. Um, he was visibly upset when he heard the news of his mother's death. And when her French relations, her French children, sought preferment at English court, he welcomed them with open arms. His half-brother, William de Valence, was made Earl of Pembroke. And another one was joined the church in England. And his half sister, Alice de Lusignan, was married to John, the sixth Earl of Warren. Um, so he looked after his siblings from her second marriage as much as he looked after his siblings from her first marriage. We have only scratched the surface of this story, <laughs> and I want to make sure that everybody knows about your books and how they can find them. Can you go ahead and let them know? Okay, so far I have written four books. Heroines of the Medieval World, which is um, a book about some of the most amazing women in medieval history. There's about 65 women in the book, and um, Isabella isn't in it some of her daughters are um and Nicola de la Haye is who was um one of John's close friends and she looked after Lincoln Castle and held it against the French so that they could be actually driven out of England uh then I wrote Silk and the Sword the women of the Norman Conquest which looks into the influences of the women and who fought, who um what their roles were during the Norman Conquest then there's Ladies of Magna Carta, which Isabella van Gelen is a really big part of, as is Isabella of Gloucester. And that's, women of in, that's about the women of influence in 13th century England. And then my last one that came out last year is Defenders of the Norman Crown, the Rise and Fall of the Warren Earls of Surrey, which is um, a family history of the Warren Earls who were in England from 1066 until the last Earl's death in 1347. But that was um, a very um, personal one for me because I actually grew up around the corner from one of their castles and used to give guided tours at Conisborough Castle, which the Warren Earls built. So, and my next one is coming out next May. It's called King John's Right Hand Lady and it is a biography of Nicola de la Haye. So it tells the story of a lot of the Magna Carta story and King John's reign and um, through the focus on Nicola de la Haye. So Ladies of the Magna Carta is probably a good starting point for those who want to know more about Isabella Anguilem. And then maybe yes. your your next book that's coming out will be a nice topper to that gig. Yes, I, I would hope that if somebody read Ladies of Magna Carta, they would be wanting to read the Nicola de la Haye book because Nicola's 
in Ladies of Magna Carta. And also with Ladies of Magna Carta, you get to see why John is considered bad because I tell the story of Matilda the Breos as well, who was the woman who was thrown in the dungeon by John and left to starve to death, which is a bit of a harrowing story. Sharon Bennett, Connolly, thank you so much for giving us some insight on Isabella Angoulême today. And I hope to have you back sometime soon to talk about some of these other wonderful women. And that concludes this episode in the Queen series. Thank you so much for listening. And a special thank you to my newest patron, Jenny T. If you love the show and would like to show your support, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Patrons receive not only exclusive content like the other Seymour series, but they also receive it commercial free. Head on over to Patreon and become a patron. That's patreon.com slash Tudor's Dynasty. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Rebecca Larson. Until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.